This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, part of Hemispheres. On this episode of 15-Minute History, we're going to be talking about the effects of the Atlantic slave trade on the Americas. Today's guest is my good friend and colleague, Natalie Arsenault, who is Director of Public Engagement at the Teresa Lozano Long Institute of Latin American Studies here at UT Austin. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you, Chris. So what should we understand about Atlantic slave trade? I think it's important to discuss slavery as a historical phenomenon, both inside and outside of the U.S. Um, 80% of African slaves went to Brazil or to the Caribbean. In contrast, only 10% came to the U.S., where slavery was maintained through natural reproduction among the slave population, as opposed to the constant supply of new slaves from Africa. In order to present the big picture, we should compare the slave trade and slavery across the region as a whole. Okay, so where should we begin? I think we need to look at the development of the slave trade. Uh, The Portuguese went to Africa in the 15th century looking to bypass Muslim North Africans who had a monopoly on the sub-Saharan trade in gold and spices. As they explored and traded in West Africa, the Portuguese learned that money could be made by transporting slaves along the Atlantic coast to Muslim merchants. In addition to trading in Africa, the Portuguese began to export small numbers of slaves to Europe to work in the cities. At the end of the 15th century, about 10% of the population of Lisbon, which was one of the largest European cities at the time, was African. Also at this time, Europeans were establishing sugar plantations on the islands off of northwest Africa, the Canary Islands and the Azores, and the slave trade to those islands became profitable. I want to highlight this because the use of slave labor for plantation agriculture foreshadows the development of slavery in the Americas. Soon enough, other countries became interested in this profitable slave trade. English and Dutch ships joined in. They would raid Portuguese ships as well as going onto the mainland to enslave Africans for the trade. Uh, When Europeans began to explore the Americas, Africans were part of most of their expeditions. The Spanish brought them in the early 16th century to work on sugar plantations and in gold mines on the island of Hispaniola, which is current-day Haiti in the Dominican Republic. Slaves were also put to work draining the shallow lakes of Tenochtitlan, the former Aztec capital in Mexico. The slave trade increased in the 17th century as more large-scale agricultural production increased the need for labor. The demand for sugar, a highly profitable crop that grew well in various parts of the Americas, continued to grow. And the Europeans also introduced large-scale production of indigo, rice, tobacco, coffee, cocoa, and cotton. Imports of African slaves increased over the latter half of the 17th century and into the 18th. Approximately 1.3 million slaves were exported on the transatlantic route in the 17th century, and over 6 million were exported in the 18th century. The end of the transatlantic slave trade began in the early 19th century, with bans on the importation of slaves in Britain and in the U.S. in 1807. International pressure, as well as British blockades of slave ships, led to the decline of the slave trade, which had mostly ended by the 1850s. That's a great overview. So if we're going to take a more region-specific approach, where should we start? I think we need to start in Brazil, which was the largest slaveholding society in the New World. Uh, By the time the Portuguese started to pay attention to Brazil, they'd been active in the slave trade for nearly a century. 
Uh, in the mid-16th century, sugar plantations began to spring up in the Northeast, which is where sugar grew well. Uh, the colonists looked to the Indians to provide the necessary workforce for this labor-intensive crop. However, the enslaved Indians quickly fell victim to European diseases, which is an important aspect of the Columbian Exchange or they fled to the unnavigated interior of the country. The Portuguese decided that the Indians were simply too fragile for plantation labor, and because they'd already been active in the Atlantic slave trade, they began to import African slaves. Soon, the sugar plantation system became entirely dependent on African slave labor. Without Angola, no slaves. Without slaves, no sugar. Without sugar, no Brazil was a common expression in 17th century Brazil. So I know that sugar was a frequent area that slaves are employed in throughout the Americas, but what other areas were slaves used for? Yeah, the slaves were initially brought in to provide labor for the sugar plantations, but eventually the overabundance of African slaves caused them to be used in almost all areas of the economy in Brazil. They were distributed in Brazil based on whatever the primary export was for the time, so it was essentially based on where they were needed for work. It started with the sugar plantations in the northeast, then they went to the gold mines of the southeast, then to the coffee plantations in the south, and also to the major cities of Salvador and Rio de Janeiro, where they were used as household servants. Uh, by the late 18th century, about half of the households in Brazil's most prominent cities held slaves. The slave trade, which allowed for the constant importation of inexpensive labor, allowed Brazil to develop several major industries and filled their need for most manual labor in almost every profession. African slaves were brought into Brazil as early as 1530, and then abolition came about in 1888. During those three and a half centuries, Brazil received four million Africans, which was over four times as many as any other American destination. So what was the long-term effect of that? Uh... The slave trade lasted longer in Brazil than almost any other country in the Americas. So when Brazil gained independence in 1822, slavery was such an entrenched part of the system that the elites who structured the new nation never really debated the issue. We should note that slavery in Brazil was justified primarily by the need for labor. They rarely defended it on racial grounds. For the Portuguese, the key issue was legal status, not race. Um, and not only was the slave trade continuing during these three and a half centuries, but the same number of Africans, 1.7 million, entered Brazil between 1800 and 1850. And that was the same number as during the entire 18th century. The late date of abolition and the high number of slaves that entered Brazil in the late 19th century contributed to the country's cultural connection to Africa. Which is something that, that's obviously quite strong. Definitely. Um, and quite different than how it plays out in the United States as well. Uh, Brazil's slave trade lasted two generations longer than that of the U.S., and more slaves were African-born than in the United States. This has led to a Brazilian connection to Africa that we don't see quite as present in the United States. The transference of African culture in these circumstances is a lot more direct than in the U.S., where links to Africa were really stories of one's ancestors more so than one's own personal experiences. I think it's only recently that U.S. African Americans have begun to develop that connection with Africa in a way that more closely resembles the situation in Brazil. The lingering effects of the slave trade and the institution of slavery can be seen 
every day in Brazilian cuisine, religion, music, and dance. And it can also be seen in the people on the streets that you see every day. It's a black and brown population that is larger than the population of every African country except for Nigeria. Of course, when we're talking about the Americas, the other place that we clearly see an African influence and ties back to Africa is is Haiti. Yes, definitely. Um, Haiti is located on the island of Hispaniola, which was originally settled by the Spanish. The Spanish liked that location because it was key to launch conquests of new territory in the Americas. Uh, They introduced slavery there, as well as small-scale sugar production, uh, which they did almost immediately. The first slaves were Taino Indians, who went from a population of hundreds of thousands in 1492 to 150 about 50 years later. As the indigenous population was dying of abuse and disease, African slaves were brought in. The first 15,000 came in 1517. Uh, although the Spanish settled on the eastern part of the island, they focused their attention on their more prosperous colonies in other parts of the America. They found gold in Mesoamerica, for example, so that's where they tended to pay their attention. So this led, in the early 1660s, to an incursion into the western part of the island by the French. Uh, In 1697, after decades of fighting over the territory, the Spanish finally ceded the western part of the island to the French, who called it Saint-Domingue. That was the, the colony which eventually became Haiti, and so I'll just call it Haiti while we're talking here. And Haiti, of course, as you mentioned, was was a French colony. How involved were the French in the Atlantic slave trade? They were very involved. They were just behind the Portuguese and the British in terms of volume. Uh, They were responsible, I believe, for about 20% of the slaves coming across the Atlantic. Uh, Between the end of the 17th century, around the time that they settled on Hispaniola, and the mid-19th century, the French made more than 4,000 registered slaving trips to the Americas. So, much like the Portuguese, they had easy and regular access to slave labor. The French originally cultivated indigo in Haiti, but they quickly exhausted the soil. Indigo might not have worked, but it wasn't due to a labor shortage, so they quickly moved on to another, even more profitable crop, sugar. More than 100 sugar plantations were established between 1700 and 1704. Sugar production was very profitable, and Haiti quickly became the richest of France's colonies. As sugar expanded, so did the slave population. By 1720, the French were importing 8,000 slaves each year from Africa. Haiti was the main destination for most of the slaves carried across the Atlantic on slave ships. Uh, When the French began to plant coffee around 1734, profits in Haiti soared and more slaves were needed for yet another labor-intensive crop. Haiti was soon producing 60% of the world's coffee. Crop expansion required additional labor, as did the high mortality of the slave population due to harsh working conditions. The average lifespan of a slave in Haiti was less than seven years. By the mid-18th century, more than 10,000 slaves arrived each year, with more than 40,000 arriving in 1787. By then, there were nearly half a million slaves in Haiti, and two-thirds of those slaves were African-born. That's a huge number. How does that compare to the number of French colonists? Uh, The slave population of Haiti vastly outnumbered the free colonists. But somehow, even with inferior numbers, the French were able to establish a system in which the lopsided population didn't work against them. For a century, they didn't face a massive slave revolt. 
However, as time wore on, and as the rich plantation owners and the working-class colonists fought amongst themselves over their relationship and privileges with France, the slaves began to organize. And given that they outnumbered the free population more than 10 to 1, this organization eventually led to the Haitian Revolution, um, which we'll discuss in greater detail in another episode. Uh, The French believed that they were superior to the people they conquered and the people that they enslaved. Uh, Where the Portuguese were defending slavery on the basis of the need for labor, the French justified it on racial grounds. They tracked people's racial heritage into 128 parts, which is six generations. So think about this as tracking your ancestry back to your great, 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 great grandparents. They were focused on how that ancestry broke down between European and African roots. A European had to have 128 parts European heritage. An African had 128 parts African heritage. A mulatto was half-half, or 64-64. The true obsession was shown in the categories in between. Even someone who had 125 to 127 European parts was called mixed blood in Haiti. So, while the massive and continued importation of African slaves allowed Haiti to become France's richest colony in the New World, it also created a highly hierarchical and racialized structure in which the French elite were convinced of their superiority in every way. You mentioned at the beginning that African slaves were with the Spanish during the very first conquest. So, before we wrap up, what about the rest of the Spanish colonies? Sure. Uh, The numbers of slaves that ended up in Haiti and Brazil were far greater than in the Spanish colonies, but the Spanish were also using slaves. The primary difference here was that the Spanish were not as active in the slave trade directly from Africa, and they were more often purchasing slaves from British and Dutch traders. As I mentioned earlier, African slaves were with the Spanish at the beginning, so I thought it was rather ironic that African slave labor helped the Spanish as they completed the conquest of the Aztecs in Tenochtitlan using one conquered people people to help conquer another people. Slaves were also put to work in the sugarcane and rice fields of Mexico along the coast of Veracruz. The numbers were significantly smaller than in Brazil and Haiti, however, with a slave population of only 16,000 in all of Mexico in the mid-18th century. Still, the black population outnumbered the Spanish settlers in the colony. Like in Mexico, uh, slaves traveled with the conquistadors of Peru. Uh, Francisco Pizarro received a permit to bring in slaves for public construction. They built the first Spanish roads and bridges, although, of course, the Inca infrastructure had already been there. Uh, The Spanish colonies where sugar or mining were king employed considerable slave labor. Cuba, Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru. In other parts of Spanish America, where large-scale agriculture or extractive industries weren't the main economic sector, such as Argentina or Costa Rica, slaves were used mostly in artisan or domestic work, but their numbers were never very large. Still, their presence wasn't insignificant. Africans were nearly one-third of the population of Buenos Aires in the early 1800s. And we've heard about the Portuguese and the French, so how did the Spanish justify slavery? Like the French, the Spanish justified slavery on racial grounds, and they focused on each person's ancestry. In Mexico, they created a series of casta paintings, casta being the Spanish word for caste. 
in which they literally illustrated the various racial categories. Dozens of racial categories were defined in these Costa paintings. Because the Indian populations in Mexico were greater than they were in Brazil and Haiti, many of the racial categories focused on that mixing. But African mixes were also included. As in Haiti, the presence of African slaves in Mexico contributed to the Europeans' concerns with race and racial purity. A lot of time was spent distinguishing Europeans from the indigenous, African, and mixed populations, all of whom they considered inferior. So to wrap up, what do we make of all of this? Well, to me, you have to consider um, that whether in large numbers or relatively small, African slaves drove the economies of the New World colonies. Their labor helped to build the infrastructure of the region and the riches of European nations. European domination of the slave trade allowed easy access to inexpensive labor, labor that was also deemed highly expendable, which in turn allowed European powers to exploit the resources of the Americas for 300 years. All right. Well, Natalie Arsenault, thank you for being with us today. Uh, This has been another episode of 15-Minute History. The documents that Natalie refers to in this episode can be downloaded from our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History. That's the numerals 1-5-Minute History. We'll see you next time. If you have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to have us talk about on an upcoming episode of 15-Minute History, go to our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-minute history, that's 1-5-minute history, and click on the Contact Us link in the right sidebar. The opinions and views expressed in today's episode are not representative of the University of Texas at Austin or any of its constituent bodies and are solely those of the people who spoke them.